Hello everyone, this is Deborah Richardson and today I am putting the AP in Happy where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. This podcast will give a voice to accounts payable team members by talking about the growing reality of cyber attacks in their world and which vendor setup and vendor management techniques they can apply to protect the vendor master file from fraud. So if you and or your team are still taking phone calls and receiving vendor supporting documentation via email, you need to authenticate that you are talking or communicating with your vendor. Please visit deborahrrichardson.com slash authentication where you will find a workshop on how to build an authentication reference. This is the answer to the question, are you communicating with your vendor or with a fraudster? Learn more today at Deborah R. Richardson slash authentication. So I know that you know to check the domain of your vendor's email address to verify that it is not fraudulent. But what happens when the cyber criminal is sending the email from your vendor's email account? Keep listening. Welcome to episode 101, why you still need to authenticate vendors even when their email address is legitimate. So in terms of payment fraud, phishing attacks involve fraudsters sending emails with the goal of obtaining credentials to gain access to your or your vendor's email account. While on the other hand, business email compromise or BEC attacks involve the use of social engineering tactics to get accounts payable to make a fraudulent wire transfer or change vendor banking details to a fraudulent account. And so I have quite a few um, blog posts about BEC. So now I want to expand on what happens when the phishing attacks result in the fraudster gaining access to your vendor's email, which um, by the way does or can involve BEC. So let's talk a little, uh, a little bit more about that in detail. And so what that's really called is email account takeover, or it's one of the names for it. And it can also be referred to as third-party phishing. And so third-party phishers are when a cyber criminal accesses your vendor's legitimate email, then uses that access to communicate with you to take some type of an action. And so third-party phishing, email account takeover, um, according to Experian, their definition of email account takeover is email account takeover occurs when a froster gains access to a legitimate user's email through a data breach that exposes credentials, purchasing from the dark web, or phishing scams. Email account takeover can be more complicated and harmful when it is ex- executed, excuse me, in pursuit of a cross account takeover. So that's the ex- uh, definition from Experian. 
And while the goal of the email account takeover can be phishing attempts from your legitimate vendor's email to obtain your login credentials. And by the way, if you want to read more about that, I will have a link to a know before article titled how to defend against fishes coming from trusted partners. And I'll put that link in the show notes. So while it can be used for additional phishing attempts, Experian talked more about cross-account takeover in their definition. And cross-account takeover is where the cyber criminal will change the password of an email or mobile account with the vendor's financial institution to steal the funds in the account. For accounts payable though, this can play out as an email request to change vendor bank details or remittance address for checks to divert payments. And because the carefully studied emails matches the vendor email, it appears legitimate. Now, there have also been reported incidents where the email account takeover is internal and you've got an email coming from an internal team member from your company. And while some of the strategies I'll talk about will work for internal team members, I'm really focusing on the vendor email account when a cyber criminal is sending a request through that legitimate email address. And so why am I focusing on that? Well, because the average BEC wire transfer increased from 54,000 in Q1 2020 um, to 80,000 in Q2 2020. No doubt the uh, pandemic had an effect on that. And other social engineering fraud has increased as well, again, due to the pandemic and the continued remote work requirements. So even though you think that the email you receive from your vendor is valid based on the email domain, you still need to authenticate. And so let's talk about a a few ways that you can do this. So the first one is apply authentication techniques before discussing any issue when getting requests from email or telephone. And I actually recently did a blog post entitled, Is Your Accounts Payable Team Still Taking Live Phone Calls from Vendors? Updated for 2020. And so I'll leave a link to that, which has more details on how to authenticate and what some authentication techniques, uh, what they are. But it's basically making sure that you identify some elements that only you and your vendor would know so that you can authenticate that vendor before you discuss anything with them. And you can do that via email or even if they're contacting you by phone. So I'll put a link to that blog post in the show notes and you can get more information. I also have, which I talked about um, before this episode, an authentication reference um, workshop. And here you can build an authentication uh, reference. So I'll link, uh, leave a link to that uh, those workshops in the uh, show notes as well. But they're basically going on every Thursday from September 17th 
through December 17th and you only need one session. So pick a session, um, enroll and, and we can build your authentication reference along with the class. It's limited to 25. So make sure you sign up. And if a workshop is not available, it means it's full, but it looks like there, uh, for every date so far, there's some seats available. All right. So the next authentication piece is you want to authenticate the data as well prior to making changes in the vendor master file. So yes, you're going to authenticate that you're talking to your, um, to the vendor, but then when you get that information back in, you're also going to require existing information such as the bank account number. How great is that? Is that if you need to change the bank account number that you require them to know the old bank account number. And by the way, if they say they don't know it, you're just talking to the wrong person. They receive payment in your bank account and they have to keep track or keep that um, bank statement for, I believe it's seven years. Um, so someone in that company knows uh, what the existing bank account number is. So make sure you um, push back and let them know that, that they need to find that bank account number if you require that as part of the authentication. The other thing that you can do is you can require the last three deposit dates and amounts or any other elements that only the real vendor would know that is tied to their data. If they're a public company, I wouldn't make the tax ID one of those elements, although you could if you offer or require multiple um, elements. So the tax ID and say um, the bank account number, that would be, uh, that would be valid. And again, include that criteria on the forms that you use to collect banking details and then save those forms, attach them to the vendor record so that you always have a record of, um, of the change and also save the email that it came as well. Um, save an electronic form and attach it to the vendor record. So now you have the supporting documentation as well as the source of the supporting documentation. And again, if you want a recommended process, um, I do have an on-demand webinar and it's called Protecting Vendor Bank Details When You Receive Changes Via Email Beyond the Phone Call. And this was back, um, this on-demand webinar, I believe was back in April, April 29th or maybe um, the early part of May. And this is where we had all, um, uh, most of you guys for most of AP had just went home, started working remotely and found out that you couldn't reach your vendors because they were doing the same thing. They were scrambling the same way that most AP departments were. So I'll put a link to that on-demand webinar. I have it on my site as well on my YouTube channel. And by the way, you can listen to these podcasts on my YouTube channel. They're automatically uh, converted to an MP4 and they are loaded onto my YouTube channel as well. So the next thing that I recommend as part of the overall update process of your vendor information, and you've probably heard this before, is to just send a notification to the existing email address on the vendor record. Now, in this case, I know that we're talking about the existing email address being the valid vendor email address that the fraudulent request is coming through. And even though the cyber criminal may still have access to the compromise 
customized email account, the vendor may still see this email and notify you if they did not initiate the change. And so if you want more details, you can see my blog post, um, send a notification after updates in the vendor master file. And again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now, just as a note, you are not out of the woods if you have a vendor self-registration portal. Your compromised vendor may be like everybody else who reuses their login credentials. And so you want to ensure that there is multi-factor authentication available and enabled on the tool. Now, if the trigger for multi-factor authentication is not at every login, then it at least needs to be required when the system identifies a change in location or IP address or other criteria is detected by the system. So there needs to be a way to determine when something has changed so that they can trigger MFA, otherwise trigger it at each login. All right. So we talked about adding authentication with the authentication techniques, um, with authenticating the data, and then with sending a notification to the existing email address. And then also just talking about um, what to do if you have a vendor self-registration portal. One thing I do want to close out on is I actually had a vendor reach out to me this week and indicated that his account or his email account was taken over by a cyber criminal or fraudster and sent an email over to one of his clients and indicated a change in bank details, which the client did do. And it wasn't until the vendor realized they hadn't received their payment that they reached out to their client and was then notified of what happened. And so the vendor wanted to, of course, be reissued his payment because in their view, the client made the error in paying and updating and paying the wrong bank account. The client, however, is saying, oh no, that email account was your valid account and we did get a valid request from that account. And so I am actually tracking that. The resolution hasn't been identified yet, but hopefully I'll be able to get um, one, the resolution of what happened, because that is very interesting. Um, and I'm not an attorney, so I don't know the legal standpoints e on either side, but I would like to know what the resolution is and hopefully you will too. So I tried, um, uh, I talked to the vendor to see if they would be willing following following the resolution to come on the podcast and just talk about their experience. And I think it can be important to understand the viewpoint from the vendors in all of this fraud, especially in this situation, because the fraud did originate from within the vendor's email. And so more to come on that. Hopefully we can get the vendor on within the next few episodes. So thanks everyone. I hope you enjoyed the 101st episode of the Putting the AP in Happy podcast, where accounts payable teams are empowered to protect the vendor master file from fraud. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and writing a review of my podcast on the platform that you use to listen. Stay happy. Mm -hmm.